welcome to the NK News Podcast. I am your host, Jacko's Wetsuit, and today our episode is recorded here in Washington, D.C., in my own, own hotel room at the uh, Wink Hotel. Uh, it is Tuesday, the 28th of January 2020, and I'm joined today by a very special guest. Uh, every guest is special, but you're super special. Uh, Robert Carlin. Can I call you Bob? Yes. Bob Carlin is a visiting scholar at Stanford University Center for International Security and Cooperation with a research interest in U.S.-North Korea relations. Bob previously served as senior policy advisor at the Korea Peninsula Energy Development Organization. Was that called Kino? It is. From 2001 to 2006, where he led numerous trips to North Korea. He also worked within the U.S. government as chief of the Northeast Asia Division in the Bureau of Intelligence and Research at the State Department from 1989 to 2002, a job he took on after over a decade of work at the Central Intelligence Agency. Bob holds an MA in East Asian Studies from Harvard University and a BA in Political Science from Claremont Men's College. Bob, thanks for joining me. I'm happy to be here. Believe me, I'm looking forward to a, to being in a pod. <laughs> uh, now, you uh, you worked at at Keto. Does Keto still exist? Is that still a, a, Not really. a rump organization? Well, part of a rump. Um, the, Is there someone answering the phones and you know taking the mail? He's supposed to be. I don't know if he is. The, the, the reason it hasn't disappeared partially is because North Korea still technically still owes money. Uh, and so every year, at least until recently, Keto would send a message to the North Koreans saying, you owe us XXXX. And I'm sure if you listen closely, there would be gales of laughter on the other end. Because wow. yeah. they, they're not going to pay, obviously. Cause I, first of all, I think that the uh, Scandinavians learned to stop sending those reminder letters back in the 1970s. Uh, but secondly, and more importantly, I was under the misapprehension that the money for keto was to be raised by a consortium involving, what, uh, South Korea, Japan, the United States, Europe, not North Korea. When you say North Korea owes money for keto, uh, how, does, how, how did they ever get lumbered with, uh, with bills for that? Because the Japanese money, uh, if, if I've got this right, the Japanese money was not <clears throat> was it? It was a loan. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't Korean. A grant? Yeah, it wasn't a grant. The South Korean money was a grant. Japanese was a loan, and so they want to be paid back. And and mm. when the Japanese finally settle with North Korea and pay the reparations or whatever they call it, um, I'm sure the the numbers will read what they've agreed to. And then the Japanese will say minus ah. a billion, which you still owe us. Okay, so that money, and, and it is apparently around a billion dollars. It, it hasn't been forgotten, and it'll pop up at some point, some final reckoning in the future. I bet it will. Yeah. Okay, now what I really want to talk to you uh, about today, Bob, is um, Don Oberdorfer's book, The Two Careers, which first came out in the late 1990s, 1997, I wanted, around that time. I think that's right. And I read it in the early 2000s. And then uh, you were instrumental in um, the second edition no. coming out. Well, not, Don did a lot of research, and uh, he and I spent a good bit of time talking about it, but he still wrote the second ah. edition. It was the third edition that I... Ah, okay. Yeah. All right. So Don's no longer with us. That's sadly. right. Sadly. Uh, passed away in 2015, you said? That's correct. Yeah. Uh, so this third edition, uh, which was what put your name on the book as, as a co-author. That's right. Right. And when did that come out? 2000, maybe very early 2016, I think. 
I think that's right. Maybe 50, yeah, sixteen. Okay, and it, it's a it is such a, a an excellent work. Uh, the book in in all of its editions, but certainly the most up to date version, the third edition, is um, you know if I were teaching uh, anything to do with Korean studies or North Korea nuclear program at a, a university, that would absolutely be uh, text number one on the required reading list. Uh, it's a remarkable piece of work. How many interviews did you do in in updating the third edition? I did about a hundred interviews, uh, and Don had done many, many more. I think the strength of the book, even though Don had so much more access to uh, people who were crucial in the development of of U.S.-ROK relations, uh, we both had direct experience on the ground. My experience was in the government in that crucial period uh, when I did the updating, which was like 2001 to 2012. But he had this vast experience as a newsman, actually sitting and talking to presidents and secretaries and things like that. So as a whole, the book is not, it wasn't, it's not written by historians. There may be historians who will bridle at mm-hmm. um, the approach, but it's it's grounded in direct experience, and it's from the perspective of people who saw these things unfold. Yeah, I mean, as a uh, as a journalist, uh, Don, Donald Oberdorfer was certainly a a great storyteller. Oh and, yes, and that book yeah. is filled with anecdotes, stories, right. uh, and and first and second hand accounts of of how things happened. Right, and you know. Not so. I wouldn't subtract from that or diminish that. I told him I wanted to um, not insert myself as a first first person author. So Don has himself as the first person, right? And so he relates these things. He would say, "When I met Kim Dae Jung, right. for example." Or I, I didn't want to try to sustain that, and so I never referred to myself as I. So I didn't tell the tales in quite the same way. And so there's a little bit of a shift there in the um, in the narrator. Now, what I really wonder when, when reading it, and I'm, I'm currently reading and enjoying the, the third edition now, uh, a couple of years after it came out, but what I wonder is, uh, did you have to go back and tweak or revise any of the earlier stuff that Don wrote in the first and second editions, or are you only doing the, you know, the chapters that are related to the period after the first edition came out? I did. I knew that there we were getting new information, mm. some of it from the Wilson Center's project, history, career history project, which is excellent. Yeah. Uh, I, I myself had had personal experience in some of the events that he had uh, described earlier in the book, and I thought they needed to be mm. tweaked. In adding three chapters, which is about 100 pages, the uh, publisher said, you can't write a book that is so heavy people need a wheelbarrow to huh. take it around. So if you add 100 pages, you have to knock out 100 <laughs> pages. Yeah, the idea of knocking out a 100 pages of Don's prose is horrifying. Mm. It's good. It's very tight. Oh, it's extremely tight. And what you, yeah, that's right. And what you realize is, well, if you knock out a couple of sentences here, then two chapters later, you don't have the the proper um, setup anymore. So everything needed to be really carefully done. And in in doing that, I needed to make sure I didn't add too much, uh, but I needed to add enough to correct or fine-tune some of the events, I thought, mm. that he had put in there. Other things we could just abandon because from the benefit of time, it became clear that certain things which looked important in 1997 mm. weren't really important. Moreover, Kim Jong-il had the had well, he died. <laughs> yes, and if, in December 2011. And I was... 
you know, I was in the middle of writing a book about, essentially about Kim Jong-il's diplomacy yeah. and, and domestic policies and everything. And I got a, I remember it was, must have been midnight, maybe one o'clock in the morning, I got a phone call from a friend in New York who said, have you heard? Hmm. I said, I haven't heard anything. I've been asleep. He said, Kim Jong-il died. And my thought was, son of a gun. Why would, why did he do that? <laughs> so I really had that completely changed my approach. Mm. We didn't really know much about Kim Jong-un. Yeah, he, he had only had his uh, great coming out um, in September the year before, right? So it had only been known publicly or at least recognized openly, you know, to the wider world. No, that's uh, for right. For a little bit over a year. And we hadn't had much chance to observe him or anything. So uh, that was a big hurdle that I had to get over. How am I going to adjust this book to take on a new leader um, who doesn't have any history? We mm -hmm. don't have any way of judging what he's going to do. And then we have to write it as it happens, which made it interesting, but a little nerve wracking too. Now, even in the uh, in the barely four years since the third edition came out, so much has happened, right? We've had the election of Donald Trump. We've had the numerous summits between Kim and Moon and Kim and Trump. It, it almost seems that to re simply revise it and add a few pages to make a fourth edition would be inadequate. It almost like I, I'm thinking, should it become like uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson's biography? It should just add another volume, you know. <laughs> well, eventually, yeah, I, I would say if you wait another three, four years, maybe you should write another volume. That's right. You got to find a young man to do that. That's you don't want to take on another edition or another volume. I don't think so. I don't think I have it in me. I'd love to see someone do it. If any of your listeners, yeah, if any of our listeners just, would like to either volunteer themselves or volunteer somebody else who, that's right. uh, no, but obviously to carry on such a project in that same style, uh, whoever takes it on, uh, would have to really immersed himself in that writing style. How did you do that in, in taking on the, the third edition? How did you get into Donald Oberdorfer's unique writing style? Well, first, I was only going to help him with the book, and that seemed a pretty easy thing to do, you know, doing mm. research and, and writing a couple of things. Then it became the case that he didn't think he could do the writing, and he asked me to just to write the, uh, the new edition. And I knew, first of all, it's a tremendous honor. And if you're going to write a new edition of a Don Overdorfer book, you have to sustain the strengths. And that means, as you, as you said, you have to really pay attention to his style. I ended up reading the book cover to cover three times, taking notes, noting how each chapter evolved, what the lead-in was like, how he bridged two chapters. So I needed to, to the extent possible, replicate that, or at least so that a reader uh, wouldn't suddenly get whiplash when he read the new chapters. Yeah. And I don't know if I, I don't know if I did it. I think to some extent I succeeded. I hope so. Because I haven't seen people complain that, oh, this is so different. But I know it is, if he had written it, it would be, I think it would have been much better. That's a counterfactual. We can never prove that one way or the other, can we? But right. I think it's wonderful as it is, but uh, uh, it really covers so much of the uh, the history of both the inter-Korean relations and the relations of each Korea with the United States, that sort of unique triangular relationship from the 60s really right on to, to where we are now almost. There, Of course, no book can be without lacunae completely, and uh, there is one um, incident that sticks out in my mind as something that should have been covered in the book, but... Uh, and to be fair, hasn't been covered in almost every book, and that is in 1986, in the period just before the Asian Games were to uh, to happen in in uh, Korea, which were kind of a 
a dry run for the 88 Olympics. And we know that North Korea was already unhappy then because they weren't going to be co-hosting the Olympics. So they were trying to do what they could to scupper the, uh, the Olympics. There was a, uh, a bombing at Gimpo Airport that killed about five or six people that almost, you know, it certainly risked stopping or, or uh, ruining the Asia Games as a flood of international tourists were coming. Uh, and I, I only just learned about, and I've been reading about Korea, you know, for since I came here in 96, I only just learned about this last year almost by accident. I'm, I'm surprised that it's not covered by not only the two Koreas, but by almost any book I've read on Korea. And uh, what, does it, is that because it was not important or insignificant or, uh, or simply forgotten by history? If I recall, um, that, that was one of a series of sort of minor bombing incidents, small, just in that time period. I was, let's see, where was I in 96? No, I was in the State Department there. We never got... 86. Oh, eight, that's what I 86, thought. Yeah. That's what I thought, 86. I, I might was, have misspoke, but I'm in 86, yeah. Yeah, I was, still in the, I was still in the CIA at that time. And we didn't get any good explanation of what this was. We suspected it was North Korea and that who else would do it, et cetera, et cetera. But there was no... If the case, if the then KCIA, or maybe it was the NSP at that time, I don't remember. Anyway, if they had the evidence... I never, I never, I never heard about it. It just sort of went away, and maybe it shouldn't have. You're right. Yeah, I, I think you're right that, that uh, because the the South Korean government was so uh, keen not to see the Asian Games get ruined by this, they literally didn't even keep the forensic evidence in place. I mean, Gimpo Airport reopened 24, 48 hours later, you know, to let the tourists come in for the uh, or the visitors for the games. Yeah. Uh, so it was, yeah, it was quickly uh, glossed over even by the Korean government. But it was an interesting case because North Korea apparently used East German agents to uh, to to actually plant the bomb in South Korea. Where did where did you get that? That's a that. Yeah, I read a, a, a South Korean uh, article about that, but there is a, a Wikipedia article that linked to some South Korean media articles they about it. They used German agents? East I think it was actually, and if I remember rightly, it might have actually been the Bader Meinhof gang, uh, so not oh. East Germans, but, but pro- sympathetic to East Germans. And there was a link through Carlos the Jackal. And Sounds know. like a fiction book I read about East Germans and a bank robbery in North Korea. But. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> quite. Just to talk briefly about uh, intelligence on American intelligence on North Korea. What is still the big black hole? What's not understood about how North Korea works? Or, or do you think we have a pretty good picture of how it works? I think we have a much, much better picture than we had um, when I was in the CIA. Uh, then our information was really thin, very, very thin. Um, North Korea was primarily considered a military problem. And so almost all of the intelligence was what we call I&W, indications and warning. Mm. That is, are they going to attack? Where are their troops? Where's this unit? Where's that unit? Um, there was not much done at all on the economy, very little on politics, not much. It's gotten so much better now. There's much better access. Uh, there are these commercial satellites. Um, the Technologically, I think the intelligence community is really superb on this stuff. Plus, you've got so many more videos of people who have gone to North, tourists who have gone. Mm-hmm. And so you have, in a sense, you have access to more of the country. You know what it looks like. And if you pay attention and you get the feel for it and you talk to other people who have been in there, we're far ahead of where we were. Now, what don't we know? We still don't know what would be considered, you know, the key questions. Mm. What, what are they going to do next? How big do they want their nuclear weapons program to be? Uh, what are their long-term plans? I think the key question is, do they still want the U.S. troops to remain on the peninsula? 
if they do, which... Sorry, hang on. You mean if North Korea wants U.S. troops withdrawn from the Korean Peninsula entirely? Or if they want them to stay. Want them to stay. See, the Kim Il-sung made a strategic decision in right around the time the Soviet Union collapsed, um, that he needed a friend from afar. He wanted to have a more a normal relationship with the United States. Mm -hmm. He didn't care if U.S. troops stayed. It would, it would be useful. As long as they weren't aimed at North Korea, it's right. fine. You can keep your troops here. Kim Jong-il continued that. And in, as I was observing things over time, it seemed to me that was the engine driving their policy. They wanted good relations with the United States, and they didn't care if we kept our troops there. makes a big difference. If Kim Jong-un has abandoned that, if he has decided, nah, it doesn't do any good, the U.S. is a declining power, China is the rising power, I don't want the Americans around, you know, then we have a very different uh, fundamental North Korean policy, and we have to deal with it that way. And I don't know that we are. I don't know that we... We know the answer to that. But if if, uh, if Kim Il-sung and, and Kim Jong-il uh, wanted uh, U.S. troops to stay, why did they spend so much energy vociferously saying the exact opposite? They didn't. The propaganda for their people continued in that vein. But high-level North Korean statements were very carefully avoiding that issue. And in in direct negotiations, we heard many, many times, you don't have to leave. Are you able to say whether you were in some of those negotiations? Yeah, I was. So you actually heard from North Koreans, you guys can stay. Right. Wow. Okay. And so the question now, as you said, is does Kim Jong-un continue that or has he gone back? And you say, we don't know that. I don't know that. And I haven't seen evidence on that. And there may be other people who have evidence. I haven't heard it. Do you think North Korea still longs for a, uh, a North Korea-led unification of the Korean Peninsula? Or is that also a, just a propaganda sop for its uh, its local uh, domestic population? I think in you know in their heart of hearts, of course, they still want a unified country. It's supposed to be a unified country, right? And so, why would they give that up? The question is, in the short and medium term, do they real do they think it's realistic? And I think that in some point in the, maybe the early eighties, maybe the mid eighties, they redefined reunification so that the concept could embrace the idea of two states or two governments. And that would satisfy their rhetorical demand for reunification, even though you don't get territorial reunification. They used to talk about the reunification of the folk, right? It's a nice mystical idea. What it means is, well, the bloodlines of the country have been reunited. What does that mean? Well, we've got railroads that run across, et cetera, et cetera. But you've still got two governments. Mm. You know, you still have two countries in, or two governments represented in the UN, I think they could live with that. Obviously, they could. They've lived with it now for many, many years, and they don't want to go to war to upset that. What about the concept of a, of a confederation or a low-level federation that uh, you know Kim Il-sung espoused back in the day? Is this something, uh, an idea that you believe North Korea is actively pursuing today? I don't think so. I don't see evidence of it, no. Yeah, there are some who say that... Uh, pro-North Korean people, or at least naive people in South Korea, are, are uh, running headlong into a, uh, a confederation that could lead to you know, all kinds of unintended consequences. I think I don't think they're, either side is ready re realistically to have anything like S Switzerland, for example, which is what people, the North Koreans themselves, are. Ah, different cantons. Yeah, nah, it won't work. 
under current circumstances. Uh, is there anything that, that is commonly misunderstood about North Korea? Not yeah, Apart from what we just talked about, that there are things that we don't know about North Korea. What are some misperceptions or misunderstandings about North Korea or the way that it runs? That everything is top-down. When I say everything is not top-down, I mean many decisions or certainly recommendations for policy are developed at lower levels, and then they're sent up. I heard a funny story uh, some years ago from someone who had pretty good reason to know, said uh, one of the ministries gave a paper to Kim Jong-il, some policy ideas, mm -hmm. and he scribbled on it, well, what are your recommendations? Do I have to decide everything around here? Struck me as the funniest thing I've wow. ever heard in my life. <laughs> of course you have to decide everything around here. But there's this, uh, there's still this press for the lower levels to come up with ideas and be able to sell them to him, to, to package them and in a way he can say, oh yeah, fine. So it isn't like everything is conceived at the top and pressed down. These are very smart guys in the Central Committee or in the Foreign Ministry. They're very experienced. They yeah. understand policy and the world and they're not so isolated that that uh, their policy recommendations are going to be loopy. And we need to understand that. And when we're negotiating with them, we need to understand that they have a realistic view of the world. But so much of uh, North Korean domestic propaganda um, is about the leader, and whichever Kim that is, uh, the leader, you know, literally having all this knowledge and going out there often to these on-the-spot guidance inspections and literally he, he, you know, saying, here's how you plant or here's how you build a a dam wall, and there are people assiduously taking notes. You know, is that actually believed in North Korea then, that, that the leader is all-knowing and, and is the, the final authority on all matters of economy and technology and agriculture, or, or what's that all for? I don't think I don't think people who matter believe that. I think who are the people who matter then? The people who are actually um, have their hands on the levers to make things happen in North Korea. Engineers, technicians, diplomats. You know, when you're called to account, if you're called into the great leader's office, okay, you bow, you accept the fiction that he's the god. When you're out doing your work, some people will worry that he's looking over their shoulder and he knows better. There are other people who don't believe that because he also tells them, and this, this was true under Kim Jong-il, beginning with his 2002 reforms, mm -hmm. and his, his son has obviously picked this up. You decide. I'm giving you the power to decide, he's saying. Make it work. If it works, you benefit. If it doesn't work, you have to you have to clean up the mess. You know you suffer the consequence. Doesn't mean I'm going to shoot you. It means it didn't work and you didn't get a profit and that's your problem. So is this a big change from Kim Il Sung? I other people can can uh, address that. Mm -hmm. I see him pushing uh, initiative and decision making down the chain because that's the only way you're going to get things to actually work in the real world. People have to have ownership of what they're doing. What about in the uh, the most recent four-day plenum at the end of last year? That are we seeing a, a contrary message there in this talk of uh, of recentralizing and restoring previous systems and sort of putting the the capitalist cat back in the bag? Depends on how you frame uh, you know the the concept. If his view is you're not going to have a diplomatic settlement with the Americans and that sanctions are going to stay on, 
we're going to have to operate under these straightened circumstances. Then the economy needs more rigor. If you have a uh, kind and gentle external security situation, you can afford to institute reforms that let people look after their own well-being, right? If you don't, if you're under threat and pressure, you, you just can't let that happen. You need to get people a little bit more in line mm -hmm. and, and marching to some extent to, a, to the right drum. Now, in his plenum speech, mm. Kim specifically said, we understand that we need that for our economy to get better, we need a, uh, a good external situation. But, we, but that, that won't work. We can't have that. And so we're going to have to do something else. That's the Chinese argument to him. The Chinese have said for years, how do you think Deng Xiaoping implemented his reforms? First thing he did was to settle with the Americans and the Russians. He changed the external situation, and then he could focus on the internal. And so that's what the North Koreans have actually been trying to do for decades. To normalize relations with America. Right, and improve the external situation. I mean, they did. They made a big push for the Europeans at some point. They want to get better with the Americans. As far as they're concerned, it doesn't work. You know, it's a nice idea. It doesn't work. And I think what essentially what he was saying to the Chinese was, forget it. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to do it my way, which means reform. It's not going to look like the reforms that you like. It'll be the reforms that I think will be efficient and will carry us through these uh, dangerous times. Is that this uh, full frontal assault or full frontal breakthrough that he's talking about in the plenum speech? Yeah, I, I think so. That's right. And if you look at the, in No Deng Shinwen, since the plenum until today, they've had so many meetings and so many people have gone marching up to the revolutionary sites. Mm -hmm. So there's got to be somebody has decided there's got to be some sort of ideological fire that's lit so that people people are going to have to sacrifice some. They're going to have to do without some. But they're still going to have a, a level of individual initiative. This plot responsibility system on the farms is exactly that. It's not put, And why? Because it works. Because farmers will produce more. Because there's incentives, right? Because they right. get percentage right. to keep for themselves. So we'll sell. No, that's right. So we'll see if they really do sustain it. I mean, we'll learn eventually. But right now, that's still in the uh, in the media portrayal of what's allowed. And I, I'll bet that even industry, even managers of factories, are not being told. Here's the plan. Do it this way. It's okay. You have some initiative to make sure it works, but here are the limits. So some parameters. Yeah. And then work within those parameters to achieve something that's profitable. Yeah. To come back to uh, to factions, which I mentioned earlier, do you believe that there are uh, factions that Kim Jong Un has to balance off each other to to maintain his position? I believe that there are differences of opinion. Factions is a really ugly word in North Korea. That's true, yeah, because of the 1956. And it, right, and it okay. suggests... I take that word back. Right, good. <laughs> but there are differences of opinion, and they are aired sometimes. Uh, during the period at, right after Kim Jong-il introduced his reforms in two, July 2002, there was... I think, Not reforms, because that's an ugly word too. Measures. Okay, so we're even. All right. But there was a big debate. Really serious debate. Now you'd say, well, how could that be if the leader has made a decision? Mm. I think the point is the leader hasn't made a decision per se. The le the leader has said this is this is a direction we ought to be going. Do I hear anybody's other opinions? And they voice them. Eventually, he has to come down hard. Once he comes down hard, there's no debate. There's no 
debate. But until that happens, yeah, that's that's how you get a good policy is to have argument. Here's something I could almost hear our listeners shouting at the podcast machine as they listen. How can we see signs of debate in North Korea until somebody actually comes out uh, having you know been a part of the machinery and, and comes out from North Korea and says, oh, I was there and there was debate. What are the signs that we can see you know, uh, almost contemporaneously to, to know that there's debate? I think there are signposts in the media. In the North Korean media? In the North Korean media, certain types of articles, articles at a certain level, which are rare. And when they come out, they come out for a reason. And if you read them carefully, uh, you realize you're hearing or you're reading one part of a conversation. And so you've got to be looking for the other part of the conversation. Otherwise, they wouldn't have come out making that argument. Somebody making the counterargument. So where is it? So you go digging, and very often you find it. The formula, what's the word? No, the format that's used. Um, so, sometimes they use very high-level articles in the newspaper. Now, when you say articles, are these the editorials of, of even, newspapers? Even, even high, editorials really don't tend to carry that sort of weight. These might be uh, editorial bureau special articles, might be joint Nodong Shinman Koloja articles, the party journal articles. In the old days, they had something called editorial articles, which uh, have morphed. Editorial articles used to be front page articles that they used during the Sino-Soviet split. And uh, within the communist world, it was well understood that these articles were were written at the highest level and probably read and edited by the leader himself. Oh, wow. He didn't have his name on it. Yeah. wasn't in his speech. Well, same thing in terms of the flavor. We see very high-level articles making sensitive arguments. Then you go looking for the counter-argument because they wouldn't be making that argument if they weren't pushing against something. There right. would be no reason to do it, right? Yeah, it's like making a law against a crime that no one's committing. Except that they are, and you've got to figure out where where it is. So you look for other... Or you look for the other, and if you're careful, if you don't fantasize, you can find it. And then you, once you see the patterns of back and forth, you really, really see the richness of the discussion in North Korea over sensitive issues. And why wouldn't they be sensitive issues? The question of the allocation of resources, national defense or civilian economy, is extremely sensitive. And it's an argument that has run through the communist world from the very beginning. And it ran through North Korea in the late 60s, the people who wanted light industry and not more spending on uh, defense industries lost the argument. But the fact is, they argued about it. And so, of course, they're going to continue. So by, by having these debates then in, in the newspapers, whom are they trying to influence? Certainly not the population. No, now, these okay. are not meant for them. This is, meant, this is a discussion within the leadership. Okay, so it's, it's at a top level. Right. But it's presented in media that's also read by the lower levels. Right. So are they picking this up? I that, doubt it. That there's debate going on, there's dissension, that there's two sides of the... I, I don't know. Uh, actually, although most people don't read the whole newspaper anyway, you know, if there were a sports page, they would turn to the sports page, right? right? But now, what about the uh, the pro North Korean media in Japan, right? The Joseon Shinbo. Does that also present sides of these debates and discussions? Is that part of that milieu as well, or is it completely separate? Uh, we haven't. I haven't seen um, it used quite in that way. I've seen it used in what I thought was an effort by some people in the in some elements of the leadership to get their ideas out 
when perhaps they couldn't get it, either they couldn't or they didn't want it uh, presented in North Korean media. Uh, this is a way to get it out, and they figure the Americans would pay attention. You know, the Chinese used to do the same thing in the Hong, some of the Hong Kong press when there were people in, in Beijing and the leadership who wanted to get certain ideas out or maybe have them feed back in, they would go to the Hong Kong press and have something pr printed, and then it would be read in Beijing, and people would say, oh, look at this. In what time period was that? Uh, I can remember that in the... Uh, Certainly the 70s and the early 80s, maybe. The Chosun Shinbo, published in Japan, is it sold in North Korea? Does anyone in North Korea have access to it? Or is it, as you say, only in Japan and read by Americans who are analysts? Yeah, I don't. I doubt if it's read widely in North Korea because it's really intended for most of it for the Japanese Koreans in Japan who are exposed to a completely different world, mm. right? What aspects of North America, American policy on North Korea are right at the moment? Well, I don't think it's, it's wrong for us to be trying to get the North Koreans to engage because we really believe if we could get them to sit down, they would hear ideas that they would want to consider. That didn't work too well at Hanoi, though, right? Well, Hanoi was a botch. Uh, for It was a train wreck for several different reasons. Uh, I know the American readout from it, or I have some elements of it. I really need the North Korean readout. You know, my experience... The midnight statement. And, and that, the point is, that's the statement. I'd oh, like I to know what else is. But I sat in, I can't tell you how many negotiations I sat in between, you know, Americans and North Koreans. And the Americans would come away and write up their cable of what happened. And I would read it and say, w were we in the same room? Yeah. Well, I certainly got that sense in Hanoi, right, that uh, the, the Americans blamed the North Koreans and the North Koreans blamed the Americans. Uh, widely disparate views on the same discussion. Right. And I, I have a feeling that part, certainly in large part, the American view uh, holds water. The problem is at the last minute, when the North Koreans came out fully with their explanation of what Yongbyon was and what they were giving up, the gods were not smiling on us. And, and the train was leaving the station and nobody could tell the engineer, stop, let's stay here another three hours and listen to this. And have their lunch. Right. And it, it just couldn't happen. It was too late. And I think Kim Jong-un was terrifically offended, uh, loss of face and... And uh, again, maybe he blamed the South Koreans for misleading him. Anyway, the two sides, when they were sitting and talking about Yangbyon, were doing it in a way that uh, was very different from what we've been able to do in the past. And it just, it was unsustainable. Kim Jong-un didn't, didn't quite understand what he needed to do. And President Trump had a couple of people standing at his side who didn't want him to give away anything you know it fell apart in a bad in a bad way there's also this feeling that uh Yongbyon is a what's that that saying about don't buy the same horse twice that Yongbyon is a horse that's been sold to the united states before you know that i would love to get hold of the person who came up with that old american saw and box their ears <laughs> beat the tar out of them so unhelpful and anyway, Yongbyon is a, is a centrally important part of the North Korean nuclear weapons program. Can you imagine today, if there were today American inspectors in Yongbyon, yeah. if we had disabled the 5 megawatt reactor, if we had gotten access to the 2,000 or 4,000 centrifuges and been allowed to see how they run, where they came from, how they're put together, what a different situation we'd be in today. I'd like to hear those same people say, oh, it's the same horse, you know, why do we want it? That's the mistake we made in the uh, 
Leap Day deal? The Leap Day deal was uh, they launched a satellite, and we argued that um, we had told them if you if you launch a satellite, it means the deal is off. And Kim Gae-gwan, I, I can't get anyone to actually relate what he said, but the North Koreans have a way of saying, I get your point. And the Americans tend to in, interpret that as, oh, okay, I, I get it, I I agree. And it's not that. The North Koreans are saying, okay, I understand what you just said. I hear what you're saying. That I hear it, yeah, but that's not my position. Right. <laughs> you know, we had a possibility at that time to freeze their program, to go in, observe it. This was, this was at that point, they only had, uh, I think they had only had three nuclear tests, and they didn't have any ICBMs. I mean, it would have made a big difference if we could have gotten into the program at that time. But there are always political uh, considerations. Mm -hmm. the, the president weighs, you know, what the politics will bear and what he's going to get criticized for. And we end up today with a North Korean arsenal of potentially 30 to 40 nuclear weapons, maybe hydrogen weapons and ICBMs, which they didn't have in 2011. So what would you like to see tried in the next year or two? With North Korea? Uh, I'm afraid we're at the point where somehow we have to convince Kim Jong-un that he's heading down a dangerous path. He really is. Now, to do when that... When you say dangerous path, you mean something like going back to fire and fury talks of oh, 2017 or worse? Worse. Preemptive strikes, dangerous territory? For uh, it, it seems to me that for the United States, for North Korea to truly develop an IC, ICBM that can actually deliver mm -hmm. a nuclear warhead, much less a hydrogen warhead, for the continental United States, is a complete game changer in Asia. Everything changes at that point. And who knows what options it opens up in Kim Jong-un's mind. Right now, he may think, oh, I can't do A, B, and C. It's too dangerous, you know, the Americans to do whatever. Once you have nuclear weapons and hydrogen weapons, you suddenly start looking at the world differently. On the one hand, you hope that he'd become sober and mature and understand the dangers. On the other hand, he's got people, I'm sure he's got people around him who are saying, boss, this is good, you know, we've, we've got some leverage here. We should be using it. How does that compare to the India-Pakistan situation where both of those countries who have still got quite a lot of grievances with each other have nuclear weapons but, you know, have not used them? They almost did. They almost did in one of their confrontations. It was apparently it was really dangerous. How close was it? I... You know, since I'm not an Indo-Pak, I yeah. don't have the inside, but from the uh, sidelines, and I was in INR, I think I was in INR at that time, we were hearing it was really, really tense. Uh, and the fact that there hasn't been a nuclear ex explosion, of a, a military nuclear explosion since uh, Nagasaki, mm. it does not mean it can't happen. And if it happens, the whole world changes, it seems to me. But isn't it... Somewhat ironic, then, that on the one hand, you've got uh, well, quite a lot of observers and analysts who say that North Korea feels that it's only safe if it has nuclear weapons, right? that uh, giving up nuclear weapons would make North Korea vulnerable to becoming another, another Libya uh, or another Syria uh, or another Iraq. Uh, and then here you are saying that actually it's having, North, it's having nuclear weapons that, makes, that puts North Korea in a more dangerous position. At this point, the position that they're in right now is the same position they've been in for a while. It looks to be, it, it has a sort of internal stability as long as everybody minds their manners. Mm. And we could sort of live with it and maybe try to bargain them backwards. 
it's taking the next step. It's developing that next level of threat that is so bad, and we've got to prevent it. We have to convince it. How do you convince Kim Jong-un? I, I mean, I certainly don't know. I don't know anyone who understands. He won't. You can't write a big enough check. He's not going to be bought off. He really does see the dangers. Something has to be done to bring him up short. There's no way that he could be offered a retirement package in a dacha somewhere in, uh, in western China where he would be safe from... Yeah, I never thought that the Kims would take any... Any of the Kims would take a deal like that. I remember Papa Doc and Baby Doc, and I always thought, no, nah, this is not going to happen in Korea. These guys are serious nationalists to some extent. Well, Idi Amin was uh, encouraged to uh, eventually persuade her to do the same thing, wasn't he? He was a little crazy. I can say that. Yeah. <laughs> Pull up your socks, as he used to say. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you, when you went to North Korea on your, um, uh, well, how many trips was it for Quito? Oh, for Quito itself, I don't remember. Probably 10, 12. Okay, when you went there, um, did the North Koreans know about your background for the working for the CIA? Yeah, they did. It never seemed to bother them. I never brought a camera. I didn't take pictures. I didn't wander around asking uh, innocent people crazy questions. I'm sure when I went out, and they let me walk around on several occasions, I'm sure I was watched. It didn't make any difference because I wasn't going to do anything. Yeah. If they wanted to set me up, they could have, but they didn't want to because... I, I mean, to some sense, either I, in some sense, either I was more valuable to them by not having them, or I was feckless and it didn't make any difference. So why bother? I don't know which they decided. <laughs> so, um, but to come back to what you what you uh, you're hopeful for, um, you said you hope that someone will, you know, uh, pull Kim Jong Un up short and and tell him that he's on a dangerous path. You don't know how that can be done. Are you pessimistic? Yeah, very pessimistic. That a, a second Korean War or some kind of conflict could break out again? My entire career has been concerned with dynamics. It's not plans per se, it's dynamics. It's the dynamic that leads to the escalation. Action, reaction. Right. And it has happened many times. Uh, most of the time we pull back in time. I know U.S. forces Korea is very aware of it and tries not to do anything provocative. But in 1994, yes. in the spring... Before Carter's visit? We were really, really close. Is it... Have I remembered it correctly that um, evacuations for civilians were planned or were, were... It was discussed. The ambassador and the sink argued vehemently against it. And I don't know what we were going to do. I don't know how we were going to handle that. I don't think we had... Well, I don't know. You'd have to ask Bill Perry if what the final decisions were on that. What were you doing at that time? I was the uh, intelligence advisor to Bob Gallucci, who was the lead negotiator with the North Koreans. And I remember telling them, Bob, we can't do this. You simply can't start a war over this. And more worse than that, we were getting strong signals from the North Koreans that uh, they didn't want this to go over the edge, that they weren't planning to pull the fuel rods and reprocess them, which was the red line. Mm -hmm. And everybody calmed down. What was his name? There was an uh, American reporter, Sig Harrison, who had just been to North Korea and talked to the North Koreans. And then Kong Sok Chu, the first vice foreign minister, issued some statements, I think. And to me, it was very clear. The North Koreans were saying, whoa, everybody calm down. Let's not go too far. The problem was in Washington... People's the the exit doors in people's minds had clanged shut, yeah. and people were more and more focused on the fact that we're going to have to go. 
We're going to have to do this. And when, once that happens, they stop listening. They stop paying attention. It sounds a bit like your earlier uh, earlier analogy that uh, the engineer had, had you know, uh, started the engine on the train and was about to move forward and no one was telling him to, to stop and to turn it off. No, that's right. Uh, and we're like, I mean, Jimmy Carter mm. was dropped from heaven. Bless him. Oh, my God. Huh? It made a huge difference. And I think at that point, People, a lot of people said, well, the North Koreans, you know, saw how dangerous it was and, and pulled back. I think we looked over the edge mm. into the brink and realized how bad it was really going to be. And that's why we got back immediately to the agreed framework talks. In July, we met again, and we would have made a lot of progress, but Kim Il Sung died. Again, that was one of those, I was asleep. Kim Il Sung died. And your first thought is, why did he do that? Right, right, because there was even talks of of the two Korean presidents having a, absolutely a that was already then, right? that was already settled. Yeah. I mean, they settled that in a few hours. Yeah, so that was a big turning point. But the Americans responded to that really intelligently to the death of Kim Il Sung. Yeah, we went to um, the embassy in or the mission in Geneva. Mm-hmm. Bob Gallucci signed the the book, book. The book, President Clinton. I think the Americans sent some sort of message of condolence. The South Koreans were furious. Yeah, because Kim Jong-sum did not send anything. Yeah, which was a big mistake which on I, their part. Yeah. Because we later learned that Kim Jong-il was really moved by the fact that the Americans had acted in this way towards the death of his father. So sometimes it makes sense to follow your human instincts. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to praise Kim Il-sung. You know, he started the Korean War and that was a terrible thing. But the fact is, you got to move ahead. Perhaps on uh, uh, we can uh, finish on that hopeful note that if we follow our human instincts, we can somehow step back from the brink and find a way forward. I'll buy that. Thank you very much, Bob Carlin. Yeah, thanks. And we do hope that a fourth edition of uh, The Two Careers does eventually get written, if not by you, then by somebody listening today. Great idea. I'll I'll buy the first copy. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thanks. involved in the production of this podcast were partially funded by the Uni Korea Fund, for which we are extremely grateful.